Welcome to the True Voice podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through past stories from amazing people. This is our first season, and if you're listening, you can join us in celebrating the official launch of season one. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk to people who have remarkable stories, stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain so deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoy these first few episodes, and we look forward to you joining us each week. Without further ado, let's get started. Today, we're joined by Cherie Perrone, an accomplished professional, proud mother, and advocate for people living with lupus. Cherie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Good to be here. Thank you. Um, now, let's start off. Where do you live now? I am in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You're in Philly. I lived in Philly um, for a brief moment after business school uh, off of Catherine and 15th. Um, I was kind of kind of you know downtown-ish, off of Broad Street um, mm-hmm. somewhere, so mm-hmm. you probably know that area. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to go do a rewind, go back to <laughs> kind of the beginning. Um, okay. You lived a lot of places, uh, or at least some different places. Um, tell me where you were born uh, and, uh, you know, kind of your, your first, you know, five, ten years of life, you know, what was childhood like? Okay. I was actually born in St. Louis, Missouri. Hmm. Um, don't really remember much about St. Louis because my parents actually moved from St. Louis to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in, I believe it was April or May of 1963. So my first memories of, I guess, my childhood would be here in Philadelphia. So my parents are both from Arkansas, so they actually left Arkansas to go to St. Louis, Missouri, and from there to Philadelphia. I lived in Philadelphia. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go ahead. Okay. I lived in Philadelphia from uh, 1963 up until early part of 1971. Unfortunately, that's when my parents divorced. Hmm. And we moved, my mother and my sister and I moved back to, um, or should I say, moved to Arkansas. Since she's from Arkansas, she moved back to Arkansas. But that was our. I guess not really our first time because we used to go to Arkansas to visit my grandparents during the summers, but that became our permanent home when my parents divorced. Now, what was the tie in St. Louis? Actually, my mother, um, I believe she went to secretarial school in St. Louis, and my father found a job there. So literally, as soon as they got married, they moved to St. Louis, Missouri. But that's not like it's a you know, far leap because Arkansas and Missouri border each other. Gotcha. So it's really going one state up. Yeah. Yeah. I've been to Arkansas, I think twice. And uh, it's always interesting when I speak with someone who like, you know, deeply understands a city, you can break down all the neighborhoods and all the different places. Um, for someone who's never been to, you know, uh, to either area, uh, you know, either cities within Arkansas or, or St. Louis uh, specifically uh, in Missouri, What's like the neighborhood that, um, you know, like everyone knows about or the place where they have the best restaurants or like what's the what's the thing about, you know, one of those areas that uh, would be kind of uh, new information for folks who aren't familiar? I would say, well, if, you know, Little Rock, Arkansas is the capital. Little Rock mm-hmm. is the city. It's the capital of Arkansas. And I think when you say Arkansas, a lot of people immediately think Little Rock or maybe Fayetteville, where the University of Arkansas main campus is. I grew up in a little bitty town in the northeast corner, not too far, actually, from Missouri. So as far as restaurants or anything like that, I haven't been in Arkansas in years and could not begin to tell you. Probably a different world. It's a completely different world, <laughs> believe me. But I know Arkansas is, is growing. I know that Little Rock is thriving. There are other cities in Arkansas that are growing and thriving as well. The city that I grew up in is Osceola, Arkansas, and I can't begin to tell you the population. Um, I'm not even sure if they even exist anymore. That's how small hmm. the little city is. Gotcha. Now, you talked about that experience, and then uh, at a certain point, uh, 10 or 11, your, your parents divorce, mm-hmm. and uh, you move back um, to, uh, to Philly. Is that correct? Moved to Arkansas. Oh, you moved to Arkansas yeah, at that point. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, how, how did that, I mean, this this impacts children in all sorts of ways. Uh, when your parents got divorced, how did that change, you know, kind of your worldview? Your, like, you know, did it impact you or, or were you more, um, 
you know, did you, you know, did you just kind of accept it immediately or is it something you struggled with? You know, sometimes children just diff, de- deal with it differently. Yeah. And, and, and your children are resilient. And that's a good thing about uh, children and little people. They're very resilient. It was definitely adjustment because all I knew is a big city and mm-hmm. neighborhoods. And moving uh, to Arkansas was a culture shock, first and foremost, because um, I, I can't even begin to describe what living in Osceola compared to Southwest Philadelphia is like. <laughs> but, I mean, give me something. What, what, what um, was one of the things that stood out for you? The flatness. Just ah. nothing. Just fields. There were cotton fields. Um, if you go to, I believe it's Pine Bluff, Arkansas, there were rice fields. So it was just nothing but space. And in the city, you don't have that. My grandfather referred to the city as a concrete jungle because mm-hmm. that's all you saw. Going to Arkansas, we had wide open fields. And my grandparents' backyard was nothing but a cotton field. Um, I believe there was corn maybe across the highway on the other side. They lived literally right off of the major highway. So it was definitely a culture shock. Um, the, I'm not going to say that people weren't friendly because it sounds people are friendly. But the challenge for me is that I had that northern accent. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have that Southern drawl. So as soon as someone spoke to me, they knew immediately, okay, you're not from here. Where are you uh-huh. from? And I was always getting that question. So much so that probably early teens, I tried to develop that Southern drawl so I could get that, so people could stop asking me that question. I didn't mm-hmm. like having to go through the whole explanation of my parents divorcing. The divorce didn't really have, um, it definitely had a great impact on me. But because we were with family, my sister and I were with family, both sets of my grandparents were there. My father's sisters and brothers were there. My mother's sisters and brothers were there. So it wasn't like we were leaving family to go someplace where there wasn't more family. We were right. surrounded by family. I was surrounded by family my entire childhood through my teenage years. Mm-hmm. So I think the, it didn't change my impact on the world so much. But I definitely, as a child, wanted to have an intact family. And I knew that when I got married, I would do whatever it took to make my marriage strong so that my children would not be subjected to um, having a broken home. Yeah, it's disruptive. Mm-hmm, it is. When you were um, kind of getting acclimated, you know, uh, you know, in this this you know city or town, uh, it's very different from the big city you came from. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic where we're trying to anchor ourselves. Like we're looking for the familiar things and we're recognizing these unfamiliar things. Uh, when you talk about those differences, it like, it makes total sense, right? It's like, this place looks flat. It's all this, you know, farmland. Like, it's just like, yeah, this is just different. Um, do you think uh, for you, because we all have slightly different experiences. Do you think it was more that you were comfortable um, or was there, you know, you know, from what you had known before, or was it that, um, you know, this new place seemed foreign, odd, uh, like, you know, like you, you didn't have a rule set, um, you know, what was that contrast? Um, it wasn't foreign because my parents always made sure we went back to Arkansas. We so you visited there. Arkansas. Yeah, I did visit. I did definitely yeah. visit. And Memphis, Tennessee is about 60 miles north of Osceola, Arkansas. So my aunt lived in Memphis, and we could always go to, quote-unquote, the big city. Memphis is what's considered the big city. Gotcha. So the contrast really was, this was in the early 70s. It was mm-hmm. in the South. Uh, we still had the Blue Law on Sunday, where the stores were closed and you couldn't do anything. It was also Jim Crow laws. Mm. So um, that aspect of people on the other side of the railroad track, the railroad track literally separated the white community from the black community. And of course we went back and forth across the railroad track. It's not that you couldn't go across, but it was really truly that visual of the white people were on one side of the city, of the town, on the other side of the railroad track. And for the most part, all the black people were on the other side of the railroad track. There was one high school, one mm. elementary school, one junior high school. That's how small Osceola is. And it was integrated? It was definitely integrated. Definitely mm-hmm. integrated. 
but you know that's the only place you really got integration was when you were in school. Uh, football, basketball, cheerleading, and all of that kind of thing happened, of course, at school. But unless you were practicing or uh, practicing football or your sports or cheerleading, there wasn't like going to hang out on the weekend at your girlfriend's house. Ah, uh, okay. So that was very, very different. I was not used to that. In the South, people are friendly. But for me growing up, I think I personally always knew where I stood as a young black female. Mm -hmm. In the city, you never really knew if you were liked or accepted. When I was in Osceola growing up, I knew there were white people that just did not like black people. And I have an experience, I remember when my sister and I were visiting one summer, um, my grandfather used to work at Chantus Bank, the only bank in Osceola. <laughs> and we were walking downtown. Um, I believe we went to visit him on his lunch hour. And we were walking on the sidewalk. And a white gentleman came towards us. And my grandfather said, get off the sidewalk. We had to go into the street. And I looked up at him and I was like, at what, why? We're, we can't walk in the street. We're not supposed to walk in the street. We had to get off of the street because the white man was approaching us and he had to get out of his way. Mm -hmm. While growing up in the city, I never would have thought to, and, and nor was I ever told, that you have to get off of the sidewalk when a white person is approaching you. And that exchange, even though there wasn't an exchange, but that situation, that scenario, definitely let me know you are in the South. You are in the deep South. And that, more than anything, left an impact um, on my childhood. But I also viewed my grandfather loved him dearly, but I think I viewed him differently because it's not that he was any less of a man than this white man was that was approaching us, but the fact that he had to move. Why couldn't the other man move? Why couldn't he move over and let us walk on the sidewalk? So that really left an impact uh, as far as my childhood is concerned in the South. Yeah, those moments are, are really transformative, even though they're kind of these these small things. And, you know, it's interesting even now uh, as we're watching this moment where uh, not just folks who have been battling all of this inequality for for, you know, hundreds of years, frankly, um, are, you know, it's become topical in a broader population. And folks are like, oh, wait, wait, you know, the, there's something broken here. Right. Um, which is, you know, it's great. People are participating in the conversation, but it is kind of sad that, uh, you know, folks are, are thinking this is a new thing. That said, generationally, one of the things I observe is sometimes you'll see someone who maybe, you know, similar to your grandfather is like, I just need the rule set to survive. I, I need the set of tools to you know, make sure I can move in what I understand the world to be. And, uh, you know, if I fast forward to 2020, uh, it seems like at least some of the younger folks, you know, I'll call like the Gen Z, you know, the mm -hmm. kind of the, the 15 to 25 year olds, they they have a slightly different perspective. Uh, I think one, they've blown up globally, connected to the Internet. They, they have uh, they believe transparency is uh, is just a truism, right? It's just it's foundational. Uh, and so there's as you've if you look at that transition, how do you think that? Folks like your grandfather, you know, um, who, you know, if he was if he was, you know, fast forward and he was dropped into, um, you know, 2020, um, like people who have this rule set and the rule set isn't fair. It's just a survival tactic. Um, how do you think someone like him would 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 view today's world? I think he would be sad, first and foremost, that we are still fighting the same things mm. that he grew up fighting. I think yeah. he would be um, just disappointed. It, and let me try and explain this. I think he would be disappointed in some way in the young people today in that they don't necessarily understand or know the history. Mm -hmm. Heartbreaking for him to say, as the young person, who is Dr. Martin Luther King? And they would not be able to say who Frederick Douglass is. I, I think he would be heartbroken by that because one of the things my grandfather instilled in us and my father and the rest of his children is education. 
So mm-hmm. education was very, very important and very, very key. And not just education, but history. Because if you don't know your history, you're prone to repeat it. So growing up in the South, my father took us, to, my grandfather took us to Sugar Ditch, Mississippi, which is in Tunica. Um, what's what's the name of the city again? Tunica. Oh, Tunica, okay. Tunica, Mississippi. And I think it's one of the poor, it used to be, maybe not so much now, because they've upgraded and casinos and everything there. But they called it Sugar Ditch, Mississippi, because on one side of um, the lake, the ditch, was, again, that, that dividing line. That's where the prosperous or the, the people that had lived. Sugar ditch was just that. It was a ditch. It was poor. There was no electricity. There was no running water. And it was just poverty, just poverty. So we were exposed to all of that growing up. So we, mm. we got a good balance of history and education. I think my grandfather would be excited now about what's going on because really truly change is happening. It's taken this long to affect change. I think we'd be happy about that. But I think he would be disappointed in the fact that we're still fighting the same thing, the same battle, and yeah. the lack of education and lack of history. Yeah. What, what, what do you think... <clears throat> I mean, obviously, we live in a society, for better or worse, that, you know, really promotes and in some cases rewards kind of instant gratification. Things don't last. It's all like, you know, what what's in the moment. And um, so the attention span for a lot of folks, not just on things like, you know, social and economic equality, just in general, people are like, I only have a hot second for that. (laughs) They can't they can't focus when you. when you think about uh, folks that you knew growing up who had not just an affinity, but, you know, put in the work to understand their history, understand uh, these things, what do you think it would take for folks today to get more connected to um, to their history, um, you know, given or at least acknowledging that, you know, folks kind of don't want to do a lot of work. Um, they, they want they want it instant. Right. They want to kind of microwave life. Uh, h- how do you how do you think? folks can try to tackle that? I think the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. is a good start. Mm. Um, you get that you know, visual. That's, that's right. Too. That's yeah. right. And that is very impactful. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, the museum is a very good start. And there's your instant gratification because as soon as you get there, you're hit with it. Mm. That's there, a great point. There, you know, if, you, if, if you've been there, you have to start in the basement. You have to start at the very bottom and work your way up. But in the basement, you see the these history of slave trading. You see the chains. You see the, the bondage. So there's your instant right there in front of your face. And I would hope that um, our young people that don't know the history would visit the African American Museum and maybe it would ignite something in them to want to know more. I think you have to have that passion or that interest, you have to have a little bit of a flame to want to do some digging for yourself. Because yes, the internet is right here and you can look up anything you want. So we, one thing we as people can't do is rely upon the school system to teach our history and our education. Because we aren't going to get it. We aren't going to get all of it. So we have to dig a little bit further and um, you know, talk to our grandparents and our great-grandparents if they're still alive and you have them here. That's history. That's our oral history. That's your ancestry. That's your roots. That's where you, you come from, so to speak. Yep. Yeah, and thank you to folks like yourself who are sharing part of your story, right? Um, you know, not just with your family, but you know, with this broader audience. So that's uh, that's fantastic. Uh, one last thing on on this one before we move on to some other questions, the. You know, you have a unique perspective growing up in that, uh, as, as folks say, um, you know, there's different types of racists. There are the, mm-hmm. you know, there's the Southern Fox and the Northern Wolf, right? And yeah, so you, you right. got both the, the you know, both versions uh, growing up. You know, do you have a preference on kind of facing it head on versus the more subtle nuance to where you're not really sure um, uh, what's what you're fighting? You know, I used to think I liked knowing. I, I used to think I liked knowing. Now I think 
I'd rather not know. I think I'd rather just live my life not knowing, just go about my daily existence, and it's your problem, not mine. And I think when I know, like when I was growing up, when I was, of course, much younger than, but when I was growing up, if I knew you didn't like me, I avoided you because I just didn't want the, not that there was going to be an exchange or anything, but if you didn't like me, why should I want to be in your presence? And I mm. think that's a mindset I have. But now my mindset is I don't care if you like me or not. I'm going to continue to live my life and do what I need to do. And you can either deal with me or you don't. Yeah. Um, in my professional career, I have had to deal with a lot of people in a lot of different situations. And whether they like me or not, not my problem. Yeah, no, that's a great perspective. And it's, yeah, I think that is, uh, I don't know if it's the right way, but but it makes sense to say, hey, I'm going to focus on me and right. uh, not let this negative energy impact me. Um, while you were, uh, I believe you're still pretty young when you when you participated in a program called Girl State. Um, what was that program about and, and what did you take away from that? Actually, Girl State is a program in Arkansas. Well, I'm sure there's other programs, but in Arkansas, it's a civics education program. Mm-hmm. And you really truly learn about um, government and government processes and politics. It was really, truly political, but it wasn't about Democrats, Independents, and Republicans. It was just the political process and system. So that's what we learned about. You had to complete your junior year of high school. So it was right before I went to. Um, my senior year in high school, I was selected across the state of however many girls there were at the time. And I believe it was maybe 75 to 100. I'm not exactly sure how many girls there were, but I was selected for that program. So that kind of ignited a little bit of an interest in politics, even though I never wanted to go into politics, but just to have the privilege to attend and to learn more about the government. Now, was it like, uh, here's how you pass a bill, here's how uh, you know, Congress is set up? It was like all these things on how we actually govern? Yes, that is exactly what it is. And we had to set up our own little mock government, our own little, um, I guess, at dorms, because we were all separated in various dorms. So we were probably some Democrats, some Republicans, some Independents, or whatever it was. So, yeah, it's just really mock government and learning how the process worked. Yeah, no, that's pretty cool. Um, you met President Clinton there, I hear. I met Governor Clinton at the time. Because okay. He was the governor of Arkansas when I went to Girl State, and he was there. He spoke to us uh, probably during one of our, our governmental sessions. So we all had a chance to meet Governor Clinton. And then when he ran for office, I actually worked in his campaign. And um, my husband and I were invited to the White House and I worked, not worked for him, but volunteered for his campaign. Yeah, no, that's that's a great experience. Uh, and I'm sure the energy in anything like that is, uh, you know, not just memorable, but it's just like you are part of history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It was great. That's pretty cool. Now, you were talking about University of Arkansas. What, what city was it in again? Fayetteville, Arkansas. Fayetteville, okay. Main campus. Main campus. So you ended up, um, after you graduated high school, you went to uh, University of Arkansas. And um, I think you kind of, you know, as many of us do, we're kind of figuring out what your major would be. You settled on uh, advertising and PR. You know, I guess a question for, for folks who have any, you know, any training and education there, as you look at how advertising has evolved today, you know, not necessarily as a practitioner, but just as you observe the world, you know, are there any things that you remember learning from back then that give you like some interesting insights to how, you know, advertising is trying to shape our behavior today for, for better or worse? Um, I don't think there's really any insights that I learned then that really truly aren't the same things now, let's say. It's Mm -hmm. about, selling your message. It's about getting your point across and enticing someone to the point that they want to buy your product. They want to listen to your show or, you know, just to receive what it is you have to give. So it's definitely selling um, and it's visual. I guess it's a visual form of selling. Yep. And sometimes, quite honestly, I look at commercials today and I wonder exactly what is it you're selling because the product doesn't match the message. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So it's it's definitely interesting, and I'm so grateful I did not go into advertising and public relations. I would yeah. not have made it. 
not, not, not the right set of values for you. Um, yeah, I watched this commercial for a fast food chain recently, and it was so ridiculous because they had this breakfast sandwich and they said, breakfast can only be better, you know, insert their sandwich. And it's kind of like, that's kind of a silly thing. Um, and I get their point They're you know, they're, they're using these uh, kind of intangibles, but uh, to kind of condition people that the only way your morning is going to be good if you come go through our drive through is kind of silly. Um, so a- a- after you, well, before we wrap up on that, you're, you're in the University of Arkansas. I just have a question, you know, a lot of the folks that are in my social circle, um, outside of folks who have gone to HBCUs, you know, there is the, um, uh, I think the current label is um, primarily white institution, PWIs uh, is, the, is the term that I hear. Uh, going to one of these types of institutions, I, I, well, first, let me not assume, what was the kind of the racial makeup of University of Arkansas? It, was it... Um, you know, were there a lot of black folks there? No. no. Okay. So, so, so this, so, so this is a PWI. Um, yes. And uh, so as you think about that experience, um, how would you describe that? I mean, because that's going to be foreign to a lot of people, right? And, and you have a unique perspective there. Um, you know, what are, what are some of the things that you took away from that experience or at least some things that are worth calling out? Well, it was in the fall of 1978 that I went to the University of Arkansas, mm-hmm. and it's the Ozark Mountains. Okay. Campus. So, Ozark Mountains, far northwest corner of the state. Okay. And that's thanks, just- thanks for that, because <laughs> I was going to have to go look it up later, and I still will, but uh, I was like, I need to know where this is at on the map. Okay, sorry. Back to you. Yeah. No, no, no. Not a problem, because... Arkansas, that part actually borders Oklahoma. Uh, yes, Oklahoma. So, uh, 1978, Arkansas, northwest corner. Um, not many people of color at the campus. Matter of fact, I wish I had looked up the information to actually give you numbers, but there were so few of us that we probably knew everybody. You may not know them by name, but you knew everybody on campus because they really truly were not that many of us. Wow. And there were, of course, the sororities and fraternities. And if you, quote unquote, really truly wanted to belong, you kind of connected with the sorority or fraternity. I did not. But it was interesting. I think a few years ago, and I, I'm, I, don't quote me on this, but I think it was the president or someone, maybe the Black Student Association, they issued an apology to the students that were at graduates of the University of Arkansas because of the treatment that some of us received wow. way back when. So, I mean, was it microaggressions, explicit stuff? Was it impacting the academics? Gotcha. I actually think it was both. And I think it depended upon where you work. Um, I don't believe there were many African-American people in business school. I can't tell you what their experience was, but I can tell you there were a handful of people of color in the school of journalism. Um, my recollection is probably five, and they could be wrong since it was so many, so many years ago, but there were not a lot of us. Uh, of course, the Arkansas Razorbacks, the football team, mm-hmm. was predominantly young men of color. So we were famous for our football team. Education was outstanding, but you definitely faced racism and it could be covert or overt. I, that wasn't my experience, but I'm sure if you talk to anyone else around that same time that graduated from there, their experience would be different. My experience may have been more insulated because I was in the School of Journalism. And it's not like people were beating down the door to get a degree in advertising public relations. It was probably no business and, and athletics and things of that nature. So it was, um, for me, it was an okay experience. But again, I knew, quote unquote, where I belonged. I knew the folks that liked me, professors that liked me, and the ones that were just like, just do your work get your grade and be done. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's almost like you created your own rule set similar to your grandfather and you knew when to get off the sidewalk, you know, in an evolved state, right? Like you had a, you had a, your version of those rules. Um, 
when you when you wrapped up, uh, you uh, you finished in eighty two, I believe. Yes. So, so you get married that same year, and then were you like, I'm out of here? <laughs> Actually, no, that wasn't really the plan. We were trying to figure it out, and my husband was looking for jobs, and he was interviewing jobs, actively interviewing for jobs, mm-hmm. and he was um, applied for a job at the University of Pennsylvania. And he, we came to Philadelphia. My father was still here in Philadelphia. And we stayed with him. And my husband, Ken, interviewed for the job at University of Pennsylvania Athletics Department or Recreation Department, I believe it was. And he got the job. So we moved to Philadelphia. I believe it was in 83, the fall of 83. We moved to Philadelphia. And we've been here ever since. So full circle, right back yeah, to the yeah. No, that, that's a great journey. Now, you, you talked about, you know, advertising and PR, you know, kind of doesn't align with your values, or at least, you know, that would have been a career where you'd been uh, super happy. Mm-hmm. So so w- what was the inflection point um, to kind of say, mm, I know I went to school for this. Uh, I'm going to go do something different. Well, when we moved to Philadelphia, I tried to get a job in newspapers, radio stations, just anything that would open the door. But of course, right out of college, you don't have any experience. And everyone said you needed to have experience in order to work in advertising. I wasn't even trying for the public, public relations side of it, just for the advertising side. And I had no experience. So at that point, I just had to accept the job so that my husband and I could put food on the table so that we could sustain ourselves. Mm. So at that point, I think I just kind of... Maybe this isn't something I want to continue to pursue. Let me just find something else that's going to give me a paycheck. And that's really what I just set off to do is just find a job. And you, you work in, you worked in HR. I mean, you got to deal with a lot of people, as yes. you talked about, of all yes. sorts. Um, that's another industry or, or discipline, rather, that... Um, it's, uh, you know, it's always been hard. Increasingly, there's just a number of things that, you know, employees, managers, everyone has to deal with, you know, in any type of work environment. Um, do, do you think that's one of those fields that people kind of underestimate how challenging um, it, it is to kind of deal with all the personality types and the, you know, people being people? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It is very, very difficult, very rewarding, uh, very educational, but very, very difficult. Yeah. Just because of the different personalities and types of people that you have to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you've doubled down on Philadelphia. You're, you're building your career. You have uh, a daughter and a son. Um, yeah, things are going. And then you start getting really tired. <laughs> um, now, I mean, I think everyone can um, relate to just kind of, you know, sometimes being overwhelmed, but you started getting really tired, needing a lot of sleep and, um, yeah, it sounds like that the doctors even were, were somewhat just dismissing it, right? Like, you know, you just need to take a break or what have you. Um, how did you know that there was something more than, than the advice they were giving you? And, you know, Sean, that was a interesting journey, very interesting journey, because, yes, I was tired, but it wasn't just a overlaid answer to mat tired. This was exhaustion. Mm. This was sleeping eight hours and then waking up to just get in the shower and feel like, okay, I don't have the strength and energy to do anything else and go back to bed. That's the type of exhaustion I was. And I functioned like that, oh my goodness, I don't know, I'll say a few months because I was working every day, had two young children, but I had to keep going. I could not give into it. Then I started to run low-grade temperature. Um, my joints started to swell and I was very achy and I just had this overall not feeling that. So I went to the first doctor, who was my primary care doctor at the time, and she told me that you're tired. You have two young children. You're working 10, 12 hours a day. Your husband is commuting two hours. You have a lot on your plate. Take a break. Go on vacation. Get some rest. But fine. So you do that for a little while, but then it doesn't go away. So I went to a second doctor, and same thing. And actually, I had a doctor told me that it was all in my head. I was making it up. There wasn't mm. anything really wrong with me. And, you know, just pretty much just blew me off. Didn't go back to that doctor. 
went to the third doctor who began to run some tests and it's like, ah, I'm not exactly sure what's going on, but it could be something, but ah, let's, just, let's just see what happens. Well, no, because this time, this that's a third doctor. And at this point, it's probably almost a year that I've been feeling this way. Got to the fourth doctor. Um, matter of fact, when he got up, the third doctor told me that it could be lymphoma or leukemia or something like that. So they wanted me to see an oncologist. I go to an oncologist who is the fourth doctor, describe my symptoms, go through all this, he runs all this, these tests, and when he gets the test back, he says to me, Mrs. Cohen, you do not have lymphoma or leukemia, but there's something going on in your blood. Let me suggest that you see a rheumatologist. Fifth doctor make an appointment to see a rheumatologist at Graduate Hospital, which is no longer here, mm. but Graduate Hospital. And I go into the doctor's office. He has all of my medical records because I had everything sent to him. And when I go in, I sit down, he comes in and he says, Mrs. Perron, what's going on? I immediately start to cry because at this point, this is my fifth doctor. It's been at least a year now. And I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I know something's wrong. And I'm scared at this point. Right. So he pretty much says to me, I'm here. We got this. Don't know what it is, but I will stay with you until we figure it out. So he reruns all the tests that had already been run. And he just kind of tries to calm me and says, we'll figure it out. We will figure it out. I go away, go back to work, live in my life. Two weeks later, he calls me and asks me to come to his office. I was working at Independence School Cross, so I could just walk across couple of blocks to graduate hospital. I get there and he says, I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want first? He said, well, give me the bad news first. He says, it's actually the same. So if you have lupus, that's mm. the bad news. The good mm. news, you have lupus. Um, so at least I had a diagnosis. Even though I felt the sense of relief of knowing what it was, I also had the fear of, I was frightened and scared. Because right. there's lupus. And unfortunately, this was in 1994, and a lot of people didn't know about lupus, a lot of people, a lot of doctors, the symptoms, unfortunately, mask themselves with so many different things that there's nothing that just pinpoint that, oh, this is lupus. So he didn't know a whole bunch about it, and that set me on my journey, quite honestly, because I had to look up information of what is lupus. How do right. I get this disease? And first and foremost, how do I get rid of it? Um, so that started my journey and my quest for information about this autoimmune disease. When I left his office, I left, he gave me uh, 30 milligrams of prednisone, which is a very powerful drug. And 30 milligrams of prednisone is pretty powerful stuff. And that's at the time when the doctors were actually prescribing drugs right out of their office. Okay. That's that's what I left him. Thirty milligrams of prednisone, and I took thirty milligrams of prednisone probably for about a month, if not longer. And he became my rheumatologist, and he stayed with me, um, just working through the symptoms, trying to treat the symptoms because there is no cure. Hmm. All right. So, th so there's no cure. Like, I want to make sure we get some of the basics here on the, the sure. disease sure. itself. Um, it is a. It is. A, a, you know, blood related. It is an autoimmune disease. There's, uh, you know, a number of variations of autoimmune issues that people are, are struggling with uh, today. Um, when you take some of that type of medication, um, like what's the impact? Like it's like you, your energy level rises, like what's actually going on to. Well, it's, it's really complicated, quite honestly, because lupus is an autoimmune disease that can affect any part of your body. So it can affect your central nervous system. It can affect your joints. It can affect your skin. Um, so for me, it affects my kidneys. Mm, okay. And I have lupus nephritis. But when I, quote, unquote, presented to the doctor, I was in a lupus flare. So what happens with lupus is you have these periods of flares and remission. When you're in a flare, it's an active state of the disease or an active state of what's going on with the disease. So lupus... Um, the immune system that's designed to protect you. In someone living with lupus, it doesn't know the good from the bad. 
So it just attacks uh, whatever's in the system because it thinks that your system is the enemy. So my lupus for me is in overdrive all the time because it can't determine um, whether or not it's supposed to attack cold that I may have or attack my kidneys or my brain or my lungs. The drugs that we have to take are drugs to suppress the immune system. So hmm. actually you're turning the immune system down or you're turning it off in some cases to control the disease, which is dangerous because then it makes you susceptible to viruses yeah. and infection and anything else down the pipe. So you do a delicate dance of managing the drugs that you have to take, the um, strength of the drugs that you have to take per mm -hmm. se. So that balance of, I mean, you know, the right dosage, the right medication, um, that ratio, is, is that something that is mathematical that you can measure or is it more so you have to know your body and kind of uh, adjust as, as appropriate? That's right. You have to know your body and adjust as appropriate because, and not just you know your body, but your doctor, your rheumatologist has to know your symptoms and has to be knowledgeable enough of the disease to know that 10 milligrams of prednisone may not work for this activity. Um, mm, okay. Prednisone may not work at all. You may have to try methotrexate. Or if your, your square is so severe at that time, you have to go through chemotherapy and cytoxin. Mm. So it's, it's so many different things. But unfortunately, there's only been one drug developed specifically for lupus in over 50 years. And all of us living with that, living with lupus, can't take a drug. And what, what, which drug is that? Is that the one that you're talking about? No, it's Venlisca. Venlisca oh. is a biologic, and it was developed, I believe, in 2011. Hmm. And, so and you can't take it because it's not cleared or it's too expensive or it's not safe? Can't take it because um, initially when it came out, there was uh, some question of whether or not if you had central nervous system involvement, whether or not you should take them listed. So they did not give them listed to anyone, and it's an infusion drug. They did not give it to anyone that had central nervous involvement, meaning your brain. Gotcha. So, and also um, at the time that it was released in 2011, anyone that had lupus nephritis affecting your kidneys could not take it because they did not know the effect that it would have on your kidneys. Right. Well, so, what's the test that they take to know which part of your body, your kidneys, your skin, you know, like how does, how does, what, what test is happening for them to be able to target where uh, or what type of lupus that someone has? Unfortunately, there is no one blood test. There is no one test. Um, you know, I, I complement levels, C3 and C4 blood tests, double-stranded DNA, uh, antiphospholipid antibody, all these tests put together will make up what the diagnosis actually is. For me, with my kidneys, there are symptoms when you are going into kidney failure or having problems with your kidneys. Unfortunately, when I was diagnosed with lupus nephritis, I did not exhibit those symptoms. Mm. So going to the doctor actually going to the emergency room in kidney failure by the time I got there. So I didn't have some of the symptoms other people would have, and that's the challenge of dealing with and diagnosing lupus because it looks different on everyone. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's one of these, like, it kind of depends, and you just have to go on that journey to get properly diagnosed and, and get a treatment plan in, in order. Now, to your point earlier, you said, hey, one of the things on this journey of like going to five doctors is eventually you got this rheumatologist who's like, okay, we're going to go get this plan. That's not a one size fits all. We're going to find the right plan for you. You start to, you know, get your, your treatment plan in order. How did that impact, you know, your energy levels moving forward, you know, like all the demands of being a parent. Like, so now you got a plan, but now you got like this new job, of, of handling this. So like, like what are some of the, the, the things that come to mind on how you were balancing getting that in order, being a great mother, your professional career, like, you know, that, that's a lot of work. It, it was, it was exhausting work, absolutely exhausting work. And unfortunately there were many times that I had to say to my children, mommy can't go play this weekend. You know, you and daddy 
go and ride your bikes or do whatever it was because I just needed to sleep. I just needed to rest. So I had to literally make a schedule for myself and try and maintain a schedule of rest and exercise and right diet and do what I could do. Um, I was really, truly really blessed by having a boss at the time that when I got diagnosed, I immediately went to him and said, hey, I need to let you know I'm sick and this is what it is and mm-hmm. tried his best to explain. Um, and at that point, he was very, um, very compassionate, very empathetic, and you need to leave early, let me know. You need to come to work late, let me know. You need to extend your lunch hour, let me know. So he was really gracious in that he didn't hold my disease against me. So I was really grateful for that because there's sometimes when uh, employers find out that you're sick, okay, that's it. And yeah. you're off the career path and can't rely on you. But I was really fortunate and blessed in that. But it was very difficult managing a career because I was on a career path. Um, two young children who were very active and wanted me to, my son wanted me at his track meets. Well, one of the things dealing with lupus is I can't be out in the sun for long periods of time. Ah. So anytime I went to a track meet, I had to have the umbrella and we had to have the tent and the chairs and you know all of these things to make sure I was okay just to go to a track meet to support right. them. Now, specific to that, like, you no, know, just so I can get educated, what, what, what was this? What does the sun do that is, uh, you know, making the the condition worse? It's called photosensitivity, and not everyone that has lupus has photosensitivity, but the ultraviolet rays from the sun can cause a lupus flare. Extreme, it can immediately cause a lupus flare. So I could break out with a rash all over my body, like measles, little bumps. Yeah. Um, it could begin to affect my kidneys, my heart, my lungs, just whatever it is. That's the, um, I guess you could say, that goes with the discord. There are three types, well, four types of lupus. There's um, systemic lupus, which is the most difficult, or the, the major one that affects your organ. There's discord lupus that affects your skin. And then there's drug-induced lupus, and it's just what it says, drug-induced. There are certain drugs that you take that will give you the symptoms of having lupus, but as soon as you stop taking the drug, those symptoms go away. Mm. Discord lupus affects the skin and the photosensitivity. So anyone with discord lupus, you have to use sunscreen, you have to wear a hat, you have to wear long sleeves as best as you can. Stay out of the sun. Gotcha. Now, was there a fourth one, or is it just those three? The fourth one is neonatal, and it's very rare. But basically, if a mother um, has a child, the child could possibly be born with lupus, but that usually goes away after about five to six months when the child's immune system kicks in. Uh, so okay. it is very rare. Is so rare. so if the mother had it. Yeah, okay. And then is, is lupus in general uh, considered genetic, or um, is it how, how does it – well, what does the science say for, for kind of how people, you know, develop uh, the condition? Actually, there's no known cause and there's no known cure. It, they're not really truly sure how genetic it is. There isn't anyone in my family that has lupus, but my paternal grandmother had rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease. Mm. So it's in that autoimmune family. So, it's, so it could be a combination diet environment, genetic, it could be a number of things. Yeah, it's definitely a combination of things. When um, you talk about your story, you were, you know, you were working, you had finished college, you were, you're you know, doing things when you know, kind of got, well, I guess the onset was so bad where you had to take some action. Um, is it, for most people, does it show up as they're adults, children, it all depends. Uh, like, like when, like what, what's kind of the normal timeline for when folks start to really have to deal with uh, lupus? Um, lupus usually affects women between the ages of 14, 35, childbearing years. So mm-hmm. they believe there could be some hormonal connection in it, but they're not really sure. But the other thing is lupus primarily affects women of color. Hmm. 90% of the time, it's women of color that are affected with lupus. Men can get lupus as well, but it's usually only about 5%. But lupus is a disease that primarily targets women of color. 
Do you think that that has impacted the level of funding and other types of support? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Lupus is definitely a very underfunded disease, under-researched disease compared to some of the other diseases that are out there. Absolutely. How, how has your faith helped you deal with uh, your journey with lupus? Oh, my goodness. It's been huge. Um, I have relied on my faith just to get through it all, just trusting and knowing that God has me. He has me. And I, I really rely on my faith to know that this is so much larger than me that uh, I guess you could say it's all a part of my journey. It's all a part of my plan. If I did not have lupus, if I was not diagnosed with lupus, I would not be able to do what I'm doing in the lupus community. I would not be able to help educate women and just people in general because lupus doesn't just affect that woman. Lupus affects that entire family. The children and the husband, the mother and father, lupus affects everyone in the family because that's how uh, devastating this disease can be. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, I'm not going to say I'm grateful for the disease. I'm grateful for what it has allowed me to do. I am grateful for the platform that it has given me to be able to help educate women of color. I am very actively involved in the Lucas Foundation on a local level, but also on a national level in Washington, D.C. as well. So I, I have that platform to be able to say, let me tell you about Lucas. Let me tell you what it is I'm living with. Let me tell you what we need. Is there anything I can do to help? Let me tell you about the education courses and the resources that we have available to help you get through it if you've been diagnosed with this. No, that, that's fantastic. And, I mean, with you on the board of uh, you know, the, these foundations to, to help promote that, um, I, I guess two questions. First, for someone who's going through that potentially today, do they – is it still kind of this uh, – this journey that someone individually has to push for where it's still common for some folks have to go to five doctors because they're not going to be able to diagnose it properly? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. It usually takes on average about six years to properly diagnose lupus. Wow. Unfortunately, if you're not in an active care when you go to the doctor and the blood work is done, they really may not be able to determine that it's lupus. So when someone goes with all these various symptoms, there's nothing that says very specifically, oh, that's lupus. Unless, mm. of course, it's your heart, it's your brain, it's your lungs, it's your kidneys, and they begin to test and dig deeper. So that's a part of the challenge with living with and living with lupus. <clears throat> so wow. we need to have educated doctors. And yep. quite honestly, it takes a team of doctors. I have a team of probably five doctors that I see on a regular basis just to maintain a level of, uh, um, I'll just say, low simmer for my disease activity. Right. And it's really important that the doctors work together because it's it's very team, te- team treatment as well as tailored treatment. Right. So it needs to be team oriented and it needs to be personalized. And it sounds like, I mean, this is one of the challenges with these types of <clears throat> diseases. You're saying, hey, you need a solution that's not one size fits all. Absolutely. You need a team of, of professionals working together. And that means that you also need some really good health insurance um, to to have all this working. And then we know uh, in many, you know, of our black communities uh, that the health coverage, um, you know, isn't equitable and it isn't great. And so it's just like a, the perfect combo of, of, you know, just, you know, just struggle. Yeah. So um, for, for people who have been diagnosed, so this is kind of the other half of my, my question here, uh, so they've gone through this journey. Uh, hopefully, you know, some of the education, other things are helping reduce that time of the six years. They've gone through this journey. They, they um, have been diagnosed. Is it is this one of those things where, you know, kind of community and talking to other folks who are dealing with the disease and other things can help people kind of find their personalized kind of treatment plan or, or kind of how, how, how do people connect in the community? Um, you know, maybe you could just educate me a bit on that. 
Well, here in Philadelphia, we have the Lucas Foundation of America, Philadelphia Tri-State Chapter. I'm on the board of directors here. We have all types of resources. First and foremost, we have support groups. We have oh, we probably have maybe 18 to 20 support groups in the tri-state area. So we also support Delaware and Southern Jersey, as well as Southeast Pennsylvania. So we have support groups. Anyone that calls the office that says, I've been newly diagnosed with lupus, I'm scared, I'm frightened, I don't know what it is. More often than not, I may get that call because I volunteer in the office as well. So I talk to that person, first and foremost, to let them know you're going to be okay and try and present some calm and some reassurances because it's frightening. You don't know what you're going to anticipate, especially if you're diagnosed as a result of a trip to the emergency room. Mm. That was something right. really weird. So we have education courses. We have a lupus self-help course that I actually teach with a partner. It's a five-week course designed to help manage the disease, teach you, give you the tools, and equip you to be able to help help yourself with self-management. So we have the Living Well with Lupus Symposium. We do at least three or four, four a year. Jersey, Delaware, Harrisburg, and then the Philadelphia area where we have our big one, and all of us come together. So we do our best to provide the resources so that people know, first and foremost, they're not alone. Mm-hmm. You can always reach somebody and talk to somebody that is dealing with the disease just like you are. There's education out there. There's support, um, not just support from having someone to talk to in the support group, but we also have a small grant if someone is struggling to get their medication or struggling to make co-payments for the doctors um, or just struggling to, to go to the doctor period, who call us, call our office. We have those resources available to help people. So if you're living with lupus, you know someone living with lupus, call us, get in touch with us, we're here. Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic and, <clears throat> excuse me, as you're telling your whole story, it kind of all comes together where you're, you know, fairly uniquely um, positioned to uh, kind of help this community and uh, just kind of quickly recounting on the story. You know, when you shared the story with your grandfather getting off the sidewalk, when you uh, and, and that's such a powerful thing, um, just that particular moment, because it is about survival in the face of inequality, right? Like you're trying to figure out how to survive, even though you know it's not fair. (laughs) Um, And, you know, fast forward, you have figured out a set of rules to, um, you know, make sure that you're, you know, kind of living the best life, um, even though you're, you're dealing with this, this condition that, you know, frankly, isn't fair. Um, but then also, you have these uh, moments, you know, uh, you know, going to that, that program where you kind of learned about civic um, and, and uh, political science, like how to organize and communicate and get things through, you know, the communication skills from, from, from school, and then all the people management, you know, um, you know, skill sets from, from, you know, your HR experience and you bring it all together. And, you know, you also have this empathetic um, vantage point because it's not just um, something that you, you know about, but it's something that you have a lived experience. Uh, you can kind of put it together. And when you speak, it's very clear. You're almost like stately, right? You have all of these moments that uh, have helped shape and prepare you to be a spokesperson for this. And so it's pretty fantastic that this is how you've decided to, uh, you know, spend part of your time. So that's uh, it's just great to see. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It, it's definitely changed my life. And if I never knew what my purpose was before, I certainly understand and know what my purpose is now. Yeah, isn't that interesting how sometimes the adversity helps yes. shape that clarity? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Fascinating. Um, as we're wrapping up, uh, what message would you like to share with the world? Well, uh, I guess a message of hope. Specifically for anyone that is living with lupus, diagnosed with lupus, knows anyone who's living with lupus, um, there's always hope. There's no cure, but we can manage it. There's no specific drugs, but you know, again, we manage it. So I don't want anyone to feel alone. I don't want anyone to give up hope because they're not by themselves. No need to be hopeless. We're here. We're here. 
And I guess in light of the times that we're going through now and something that I try and live by, it's just to treat people the way you want to be treated. You know, it's it's such a simple message, but it seems so very difficult and so hard for people. Just don't say something to someone you wouldn't want said to you. Don't treat someone horribly if you wouldn't want someone to treat you that way. So my my thing is always just do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Thanks to everyone listening today, joining our conversation with Cherie Perrone. We hope you've learned something new and uh, also been inspired. I love the story of kind of resilience and uh, just the ability to kind of uh, uh, face adversity uh, and come out stronger on the end. Um, if you have any comments or suggestions, as usual, please reach out at hello at truevoice.com. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.